Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. It's October, it's fall, the leaves are changing, but you know what's not changing? You know what hasn't changed at all? Cool people still stop by the House of Kraus for a visit. This week we have two very different but really interesting people. First up, Deepa Mehta. Deepa Mehta is going to talk to us about her film Biba Boys. Uh, it's a violent look at a Vancouver gang of second and third generation Indo-Canadian criminals uh, known as the Biba Boys. This is a much different kind of film for Deepa Mehta who is usually known for making introspective films like Water or Midnight's Children. Uh, it's funny though that this movie has gotten a lot of attention because it is a gangster film, a full-on gangster film. In the interview, I think Deepa says, Tarantino, eat your heart out. Well, this movie is getting the kind of attention that Deepa Mehta gets when she makes a movie and puts a gun in somebody's hand. That seems to be all anybody wants to talk about. Instead, I chose to talk to her about a few other aspects of the film. So we'll get to that in a second. Also, Malcolm McDowell. If he had never made another movie after Oh Lucky Man or Caligula or A Clockwork Orange, his place in Hollywood history would be secure. But he didn't stop there. Uh, he went on to star in all sorts of other films, taking on uh, roles in television shows and films like The Employer, Tank Girl, uh, Franklin and Bash, Time After Time, Star Trek, uh, Generations. He even was in a Slipknot music video. Guys everywhere. He is one of the consummate bad guys on screen. And uh, I talked to him about that. I talked to him about how playing bad guys have given him a good career and also playing ping pong with Stanley Kubrick. We'll get to that in a second. First up though, here's Deepa Mehta. You have to tell me about how do you arrange meetings with real life gangsters? What happens when you arrange it? Is it difficult? Is it clandestine or are you meeting over breakfast? Over breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, uh, there's one, uh, you know, it, it just happens through friends. You know, somebody says, I know uh, I've done a film and one of the people in the film was was a gangster. Mm -hmm. Would you like to meet him? And I said, absolutely. So I meet this gentleman and, and that was over breakfast. Or was it? No, it was over Thai food. Sorry. Right, right, right. <laughs> and uh, uh, and we talk and, you know, you realize that he and he says, I'm I'm the only one I know who's still alive right. because all the the rest are dead. And. Uh, you know, and then there was another one that I met actually, who, not through him, but through another friend, who whose house I went to, which was very interesting mm -hmm. because it was a place in Surrey, and uh, and upstairs uh, was this really you know sweet middle class clapboard house, and uh, and I met the mother, uh, who was you know in the kitchen, mm -hmm. and uh, when I went downstairs, it was another scene or totally because there was a mountain of cocaine, and I've never seen guns in my life, like real-life yeah, guns, yeah, you know. Yeah. I'm, now I know what a Glock is, the AK-47 <laughs> is. I sort of, mean it's quite scary. <laughs> but but I don't know, there was something about them, and they were just hanging around. And I think that one of the reasons they were, and I wasn't scared. And, and why I, not? That was going to be my next question. I don't know, but maybe because, you know, there's a comfort in when you speak the same language. Mm -hmm. So we spoke in Punjabi. I mean, they're all... This this gentleman was a gentleman. Wow, <laughs> this guy was, uh, uh, you know, I think his father was born here too. Right. So, but uh, you know, Punjabi was the language we spoke in, 
and and he had seen Bollywood Hollywood, a film I'd done a few yeah. years ago, and yeah. uh, no, many years ago, and loved it. So that was a real uh, a, a, nice uh, a, a nice way. And I, I I don't know. I just looked at them and I thought, my God, they're so young. What are they doing here? And they and they were bright and right. they were, and and I found out this was a very quick way of making money, mm-hmm. immediate. All all of them had most of them. The ones I met had. Uh, family histories where you know they were mostly latchkey kids right. and they went to they went to school and they came home and then and the parents weren't around because they were making money trying to make money trying to make ends meet right. and uh, they found themselves at the mall and before you know this is at the age of 15 or 16 and uh, and before you know it they're recruited by older gangsters to be dope runners and that's how it starts and, and by the time they're 30 they're all dead yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. And did you get a sense from them that they knew that it's kind of a short-term career? Uh, that, you know, you're probably not going to live much last, you know, much past 30. I suppose people think, well, I'm invincible. But if you look around, you know, the, the statistics the count, tell you the yeah. body count is huge. I think that if they if they paid attention to that, they wouldn't even, um, you know, choose to, mm-hmm. to do that. I, I think that it's... Uh, it's very narrow, you know. You you get up in the morning, and that's that's what your life is, and right. uh, they, that's why there are very few that that just get out of it, and you know. And what makes then the character of Jeet different? He is quite clearly the leader of. of oh, he's totally the leader. He's totally the leader, yeah, but yeah. but what what makes him different than the other guys? How do you become a leader? Did you get a sense of that? I think you become a leader because you just don't take any nonsense from anybody. You just right. you just tougher. You're more ruthless. Uh, you don't give a damn. And you know, Jeet. I th- for me, the Jeet character really even saw an aspect of himself mm-hmm. as the sort of savior of all Indo-Canadians. Right. Uh, you know, he says he says in the film that uh, since Bruce Lee came on the scene, <laughs> you know, right. nobody screws around with the Chinese, and I'm going to make sure that. And there are people like that. You know, I did meet young kids who, Indo-Canadians, who felt really protected somehow since the gang cult. It's not right, right. but that's how they feel. And a, a lot of the cops, in fact, are Indo-Canadians as well. Mm-hmm. And they probably went to the same school as the gangsters. And that's the dichotomy and interest and interesting aspect of it all. And I couldn't resist doing the film. Well, and know. we see a little bit of that in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a, a policeman character, and I don't think that, I won't say what where where he shows up, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, someone says, well, speak in Punjabi to me, and, and you know, we'll, we'll, this will go a little better for mm-hmm. you. And there's quite clearly, but they're about the same age, I thought, I remember mm-hmm. as I was watching this. No, I think that there's, you know, there's a, uh, there's a cop in the, in the film who says, who's a Punjabi cop too, and who mm-hmm. says, you know, you're a disgrace to the yeah. Punjabi community. Which is exactly how they feel that it's not not everybody in the Punjabi community turns out to be a gangster. The right. equal amount that turn out to be cops. Right. You know. So. But we just a, never hear about that. Uh, we don't uh, hear about much. the gangsters either. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that what's so interesting is that, out you know, it's like after after you cross the Rockies, everybody has you know amnesia, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, about what what happens in our own country, and that is another thing that fascinates me. And it doesn't happen in the United States, and it doesn't happen in uh, we, in um, in England, mm-hmm. you know, which is sort of interesting to me. Now, you know? why do you think then that uh, why do you think then that it that it happened in Vancouver? 
I, I think because it it's huge news out there, right? I mean, we it, oh, it's, all the time. It's all the time. All Every the time. day last there's a story. Week, yeah. Last week there was you know the shooting out in the Surrey. I mean, yeah. it happens all the time. Uh, I think it has something to do with uh, uh, the you know about immigration. How you know it started with you know with with the lumber. You know, the labor that comes in mm-hmm. and being treated as second-class citizens, I think when the Kamagata Maru came in and were turned away, you know, you had a whole lot of consciousness about that we are not going to be treated the same. So they, there's a real chip on the shoulder mm-hmm. with some aspects of uh, uh, of the of the community that just says, you know, this we've been treated unfairly and instead of becoming lawyers, which some of them do, mm-hmm. or becoming cops, which some of them do, some of them say, okay, nobody can screw up, screw with us, and we're going to take up guns, and that's the way we're going to be. That was Deepa Mehta at the House of Kraus. Her new film, Biba Boys, is in theaters, probably one near you right now. And you know, whether it's a period piece or a modern-day film, Deepa's work always turns the camera on her community and the underpinnings of that culture. And Biba Boys is no different. It just does so with more car chases and explosions and gunfire. That's all. Now, speaking of gunfire and car chases and all that good stuff, Malcolm McDowell called into the House of Kraus a little while ago. He is one of cinema's consummate bad guys. We talk about that a little bit, but we also, and you can't talk to Malcolm McDowell without doing this, we also get a great Stanley Kubrick story. Here's Malcolm McDowell. Why is it do you think that you are so often cast as playing a heavy? Oh, well, you know, um, I suppose uh, in my early career, you know, I started playing heavies. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose Clockwork Orange, you know, is, is one of the great heavies, really. And so if you start off, you know, if I'd have been playing, um, you know, heroic types, well, A, I would have had a very short career. <laughs> playing heavies has allowed me to play heavies whatever my age. Right. Because, you you know, as long as you change with your age, I can't uh, go acting like I'm still in my 30s or 40s or 50s even. You know, you have to change and grow into the parts as you get older. And that's one of the wonderful things about being a character actor. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I remember, oh my God, I remember um, feeling um, great sort of, um, sort of, not envy, but uh, I had a, a, a sense of, of, I wanted to be very much like John Gielgud, not in copying him on stage or something like that, but in terms of, I just thought he was so... Um, you know, his career was so magnificent, the way he changed as a person, and that he changed as an actor, and he grew into his age so beautifully. And, you know, and, and, and the fact that he was working into his 90s. Right. Well, I would say that someone who's doing that right now that I can see, and someone who's getting better as they get older is Brad Pitt. I think that when yeah, you... Yeah, he's terrific. And, and as a younger man, I think people just said, oh, you're too beautiful to be talented. You're too good looking. Yeah. But now that he's got some age to his face, that he, he seems to, to have grown a little bit. I mean, yeah. he's, he's, he's really grown into it, I think. Well, that's a good point. I think it's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Now, but we all have to do that. You know, you can't go running off to the surgeon <laughs> to keep you in your 20s or in your 30s. 
because um, why would they pick you to play part-side back when they've got the real thing? Right, <laughs> of course. And do you find, I mean, you seem to be working, in my estimation anyway, more than ever. Is that is that accurate? Well, yes, it is. I mean, I had to have, I had a couple of months off recently because I had a detached retina. Ooh. So I was forced to stop. I had to pull out of a couple of movies that I was going to do. And actually, it was a really good thing. It was a blessing in disguise because it sort of re-energized me. Right. It, did it help you refocus a little bit? You had some time to think and... and... Is, that, is that a pun on the render of the eye? <laughs> I wish I was that clever. Um, I guess... No, not refocus, but, you know, you have to... You have to sort of charge your batteries, you know, and you, if you're going from one project to the other, right. you, you know, you don't really have time. So this way, I was forced to kind of take stock and just do nothing. You're not allowed to move practically mm. for two weeks. Uh, but I'm I'm fine now. I'm back, you know, right. and I've my sight came back and everything. I uh, told people on Facebook today that I was interviewing you, and yeah. um, I got inundated with questions uh, from oh people. Oh my God, really? Well, yeah. And, well, let's answer a few of them. Well, yeah, this, here's the thing. Now, people, uh, the, the first few of the, of the responses that I got from people just said things like, I don't have a question, just tell him that I love him. And I, uh, want, I wanted to pass that well, along. <laughs> um, That's very nice to hear. Here's a question. Uh, when you played ping pong with Stanley Kubrick, who won? He never, ever took a set from me. Really? Never. <laughs> I wiped the floor with him with such great relish because it was the only thing that I could really beat him at. Really? And, you know, um, he was torturing me as the character. Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm sure that deep down he kind of enjoyed it. Right. Because he, he was a little bit sadistic, you know. <laughs> I'm not saying he, he loved it and he planned it, but just the way it panned out, you know. I went through quite a lot of um, nasty injuries and the eye thing and mm -hmm. the thing on my rib and horrible things and being dunked in water and almost drowned and... You know, there was a lot of physical abuse. So when I could get my own back, I really, uh, I loved it. I pounded him. And then he'd come back the next day that he'd figured out some kind of Chinese serve, you know. Right. And, and he'd sort of throw the ball up and put this spin on it, and I'd just wait for it and just bang, finish him off, you know. But he was always trying to figure out a way to beat me. Do you still play ping pong? No, I haven't played in years. <laughs> well, also, I wanted to pass along uh, Lizzie Tribble, who is Ken Russell's widow. Uh, oh, yeah, she's lovely. She's lovely. She wants me to say hello for you. Um, while I was writing this book, I got friendly with her, and uh, she got in touch with me today. And she said that there was a story that uh, Ken Russell had been contacted to ask if the rumor that Malcolm, McLean, Malcolm McDowell is alive, is true or not, and Ken was so upset at the idea that maybe you weren't, that he cried. And it, it, it was very upsetting for him. He wept bitterly, she says, because of a sentimental attachment to Malcolm McDowell to the extent that the Times kept calling to console Ken and myself when we were too embarrassed to admit that it was just a misunderstanding. 
So she says oh, hello wow. and oh, passes sweet. that along. Well, you know, um, Ken came out to Hollywood about three years, just before he died, a year before he died. Mm -hmm. And there was a party for him at the one of the executive producers of Clockwork Orange, Shai Litvinoff. Yeah, yeah. And I made a point to go and pay my respects to Ken and give him my homage and say hello and make sure I was there for him just to, just to wish him, you know, all the best. He, he was not well. He was, yeah. you know, obviously old at this point. And um, as I say, I think in the year he, he was already, you know, he died. But I was really happy that I, I was there, there because I think Ken is one of, you know, one of these wonderful, innovative directors, and, and I think he made some wonderful films, and, you know, from his early television stuff, which is quite remarkable, and I still remember his Isadora Duncan, which is absolutely way better than Carol Rice's movie with Vanessa. I, I agree. I agree with you. I think, I, I do think that The Devils is his masterpiece, and it's so, the reason that I wrote this book is because yeah. I wanted people to know uh, that uh, because people had by and large forgotten about him and I wanted to remind people how yeah. great Ken Russell was and how great that well, movie you know, was. There was a big scandal about it and mm -hmm. you won't believe this but my English agent who is called Pippa Markham she's just a little bit younger than I am so she's like 65 or whatever. Right. Well, in 1971, she was one of the first naked actresses in The Devils, <laughs> and they made her the equity rep. Right. And she had to call a strike <laughs> on Ken because there was so much nudity. <laughs> oh, well, I'd heard that they would give them a certain amount of money if they'd shave their head and if they'd take their, their bottom clothes yeah. off, they would get a little bit more. But it wasn't a lot of money. It was like, here's three pounds to shave your head. Like Nothing. It, yeah. Nothing. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, you know, but listen, um, that was the going rate at the time. That was Malcolm McDowell talking about playing ping pong with Stanley Kubrick and lots of other cool stuff. But that's it. That's all there is for the House of Krauss this week. Someone's got to get out there and rake up the leaves that are piling up in the front yard. So that's going to be you. And I'm going to sit on the porch and watch. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks to Deepa Mehta. Thanks to Malcolm McDowell for calling in. But thanks, most of all, to you for listening in. Stop by every Monday, a new episode of The House of Krauss goes up, and you never know who's going to come by for a visit. <laughs>